0: Heritage Radio Network on Tour is made possible by the support of the Julia Child Foundation.
1: So we wanted to start digging down into the behaviors and beliefs about food. I know that I have three microphones I'm realizing right now on my chest, and I apologize for the tech people. Um, Is to look at flavor with some experts who have probably done more thinking about flavor than just about anybody um, in this country, certainly, um, we're going to have a conversation moderated by Mark Schatzker, who's the author of two influential books, *Steak* and more recently *The Dorito Effect*, which is all about flavor. His award-winning journalism has appeared in the *New York Times*, the *Wall Street Journal*, and has been anthologized in *Best American Travel Writing*. He's a field reporter for the *Dr. Oz* show and a radio columnist for the CBC. Mark is going to be joined by Mary Wagner, whose esteemed career in research and development and innovation has led her develop- to head those divisions at companies such as General Mills, Mars, Taco Bell, Gallo Wines, and Starbucks, and has led to the creation of some of the most beloved and profitable and um, products that people, uh, t- tastes that people prefer more than any other of our era. And they'll, she'll be joined by Dan Barber, uh, who has, uh, as, as any chef, but certainly Dan, has thought about flavor uh, from the ground up, so to speak. One of this year's James Beard Foundation Leadership Award winners, who's also won several James Beard Chef and Restaurant Awards, including Outstanding Chef of the Country in 2009. His ecosystem approach to cooking and to his flavor-obsessed approach to agriculture have really put him at the forefront of American cuisine and sustainable agriculture. Please welcome these three esteemed panelists to the stage.
2: So, I'm going to begin by telling a story. Um, we're not very far from Madison Avenue. Has anyone here seen the show Mad Men? <laughs> a few of you have seen the show Mad Men. So, I want to tell you about a madman. His name was Arch West, and he worked on Madison Avenue in the 1950s in advertising. He could have walked straight off the set of that show, probably wasn't quite good looking enough to be on a show where he didn't dress quite that well, but that was his milieu. He worked on the Jell O Puddings account, he worked in Campbell's Soups, and in 1959, He got a call from the Frito Company of Dallas, Texas, and they invited him down to be their vice president of sales and marketing. He accepted. Shortly after he arrived, the Frito Company merged with the Lay's chip company to become a company I'm sure none of you have heard of called (laughs) Frito-Lay. Well soon after that, Arch took his wife and his three kids on a trip to Southern California. Um, he uh, He stayed in Orange County. And one day he had lunch at a restaurant called The Five Crowns, which was owned by a friend of his named Lawrence Frank. Lawrence Frank's going to come up in a minute. After lunch, he bumped into one of the most influential people in the history of 20th century food. He bumped into Ray Kroc, two titans of the ch- that represent the change in 20th century food, passed like ships in the night. Ray Kroc complimented Arch West's daughter's hair. They shared some nice words, and they went their separate ways. Shortly after that, Arch was driving south to San Diego when he passed what his daughter describes as a little Mexican shack by the side of the road. And he was the kind of guy who just had to try what was there. And he tasted for the first time a tortilla chip, and he thought, "This is going to be the next big thing for Frito-Lay." So he went back to Dallas, he presented his great idea to his fellow executives, and they just sort of looked at him like, "Why would we do this? We already sell Fritos. They're kind of the same thing." But Arch West was so convinced of the glorious future of the tortilla chip that he actually funneled discretionary funds to an offsite facility to develop the tortilla chip concept. He returned to his executives, he had samples, and he even had a name. In a highly, highly bastardized version of Spanish, it meant little pieces of gold. And he said, I give you Doritos. And I know what you're thinking. This is the moment the world changed. This is the moment where Super Bowl advertising would forever be different. But in fact, that's not what happened. Because the Doritos that hit the market in 1964 were just like the tortilla chips that Arch West tasted north of San Diego, which is to say, a salted tortilla chip. And in the Southwest, where there was a Hispanic cultural influence and people know that these things are good to dip into bean dip or dip into salsa, they sold okay. Everywhere else. The complaint was the snack sounds Mexican, but it doesn't taste Mexican. The original Doritos bombed. So once again, Arch West has to go up in front of his fellow executives and explain about the failure of this snack that he wasn't even supposed to develop in the first place. (laughs) And they said, what are you going to do about Doritos? And this is when Arch West uttered the sentence that really did change everything. He said, let's make them taste like taco. And this got laughs from his fellow executives, and one of them said, you don't know the difference between a thing and a flavor. And it was a very good criticism because historically, different things have always had different flavors. If you wanted to experience the flavor of cherry, you had to eat cherries. If you want to experience the flavor of fried chicken, you had to go out and get a chicken and fry it. But Arch West knew that things were changing, probably because of his friendship with Lawrence Frank, who's the guy who invented Larry's seasoning salt. And Arch knew that there was new technology. It was about 10 years old. That's when the first gas chromatograph was commercialized. That meant you could make whatever you want taste like whatever you wanted to taste like. And Frito-Lay then brought out taco-flavored Doritos. And that's what changed everything. A snack that nobody wanted to eat became a snack that people literally could not stop eating. So I want you to think about this because our food conversation, when it comes to health and the implications of eating too much is entirely driven by nutrients. We talk about protein, we talk about carbs, we don't have a particularly solid understanding of these things, but we act as though we can go out into the world and using our powers of executive function to determine what we eat. We are moved by flavor. So this is why I want you to taste the chips that are in front of you now. I want you to start with the lighter colored one, that's just a tortilla chip, and then I want you to taste the Dorito. And I want you to think about how it makes you feel, what it makes you want to do. And also think about this. These two chips that you're tasting are nutritionally identical. Same amount of salt, same amount of carbs, same amount of fat. It's the application of flavor chemicals, sensory science, that so radically changes the human experience of two nutritionally identical foods. So this is something I think we need to think about and to talk about when we talk about not only our relationship with food, but where food is going. So with that, I would like to kick off our discussion. Um, so my first question is for Mary. Um, Mary, when you, you, know, you watch TV, you read a lot of books in this sector, they make it sound as though uh, food companies manipulate us with very simple concoctions of irresistible nutrients, things like sugar, carbs, fat. My limited experience of the food world is that sensory science plays a huge role. Tell us about your experience of the importance of flavor in terms of getting products to be popular.
3: Mm, That's a really good question. So, coming from 40 years in the food business, you know, it's all around uh, appealing to the consumer or the customer. And flavor is the number one besides texture, most important thing that we, we strive for. So, I ran product innovation as an example at Starbucks. Whenever I would come up with or propose that we would come up with a new product, be it for Christmas or whatever. We would always pull the consumer in as well as our scientists and and others that we thought were essential for the process. But sensory, in the end, through all the innovation, all the process we went through, in the end, it was what the consumer put in their mouths and the feedback they gave us that drove the decision. So Sensory is essential, both taste but texture.
2: Um, Do you know of cases? where a lot of, maybe you have an example you can draw on where a lot of effort was put into marketing a new product but it failed in terms of sensory. Is there something we might even remember?
3: Oh, where do I begin? (laughs) Um, Well, you know, I would say that when I was at Gala, we came up with what we we said was a carb-free Bartles and James. Can you imagine? You know, it was when you saw uh, a lot of other products coming out, and that bombed. Like, I don't even know if we launched it, to be honest with you, because that that phase came and that phase went came down very quickly. So we just, uh, I mean, we put a lot of energy into that development, but again, I don't even think we went there because of that. You know, that situation.
2: So you knew it was. It, it just you knew worked. pretty
3: quickly. I mean, it, it tasted great, but but it was uh, it was something that was developed with more than you know, it had to taste great, but it had more purpose behind it. And that was just an example of some of the things we do that have failed. I mean, not everything we do is probably like we'd like it, and sometimes we have to make changes. We just made a change to pumpkin spice latte before I left. We simplified the ingredients, we put in some real pumpkin, and when Starbucks goes for real pumpkin, you can actually take out the pumpkin industry. I mean, there's a lot of volume we talk about. We have over 10,000 stores just in this country. so. You have to be mindful of what the change is going to reflect. You want to serve the consumer need. But when you change a taste, sometimes it's not without repercussions, too. In our case, we matched it perfectly. But it's difficult.
2: So I feel like I'm asking the world's stupidest question. But Dan, tell us how you feel about flavor.
4: I I (laughs) want a Dorito. So what, sorry, what was the question? I'm I'm so distracted by the idea of the Dorito that I can't even think
2: straight. It's giving you recipe ideas. Uh, Tell us how. um, As a chef, how you feel about flavor? I know I'm asking Dan Barber. Yes.
4: (laughs) How do I feel? Hello, thanks, Val. Oh my God, it's you! Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Nice to see you. Um, In terms of people come to your restaurant, what
2: people going to a restaurant look for in food? We all talk about health. We want to eat light. We want to eat healthy. But how important is flavor in the experience?
4: Well, uh, yeah. So I mean, the, the the question sort of determines the answer. But I just just going off of what was just said. I'm less concerned about the popularity of flavor. In other words, you know, sort of the the, the through line of what people expect um, when they come to Blue Hill or when I'm cooking. I'm I'm interested in jujitsuing that, uh, and I have this sort of the luxury of having a platform where I can do that, where where bitterness, for example, uh, can play a big role in the course of your meal, uh, where no sugar at dessert can be intoxicatingly delicious um, and that is you know, a rarefied world obviously and not not what most people have to deal with when they're marketing food but that that's you know that's where I feel like our power You know, part of it is that we curate flavors and part of it is that we're we are on this pedestal or whatever in, in white tablecloth restaurants where we're able to take chances and uh, and promote a different look at what food could be
2: and how difficult was that I, I, I know you're known for your your thoughts on flavor via your <clears throat> research but you also run a business how difficult is that in terms of uh, w- was there a negative reaction has there been um...
4: I get negative reactions yeah all the time um, um, you know and and I throw a Tissy fit in the kitchen. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not nice about it. But, you yeah, know, I get negative reaction all the time. I just, you know, I, I mean, what's interesting about this conversation in, in listening to your talk anyway is a little bit about how these things are presented. So I'll give you an example, and hopefully it'll be specific to, to get an answer out of the question here. Uh, we're working right now with a, with a corn breeder, um, uh, uh, with sweet corn. Uh, now, this is an area where if you ask, you know, 10 chefs, what do you think of super sweet corn? I'm willing to bet that 10 of ten of them will say, I really hate this stuff. Uh, but it's all I can use uh, because it's all that's out there when you go and buy sweet corn, whether it's from a local farmer or you buy it from the relatively big food chain that supplies sweet corn, you're getting super sweets. And every year, or every two years, a new sweet corn is introduced that is even more sweet. In fact, it's become to the point where in my day, I sound like my grandfather now, but when I was growing up, you picked corn and you had to race from the field and put it in the pot of water to preserve its sweetness, right? Now you can pick it starchy, and as it sits in storage and in the grocery store, it actually gets sweeter. Um, so there's been so many advances, but but it's all gone to So You rarely taste actually corn, and that's why chefs react against it, but there's very little sugar. So I, I took the opportunity to speak to actually a corn breeder, a sweet corn breeder, who is who is like in the sanctum sanctorium of, of sweet corn breeders? Like he's but but he he quietly was like I don't like doing this, but it's what the industry is demanding, and he's working with us on a corn that is not super sweet. Uh, so we're going back, and actually literally going back because we're going back a hundred years to some of these varieties that um, are quite exciting. There's a w- one variety called um, Howling Mob, which which hasn't been grown around here in more than hundred years. Howling mom's named after a corn that, that people used to line up at the farmer's market and howl uh, because it was so delicious. Um, but it tastes, tastes like corn and, and it's a reminder that sweet corn, which is a genetic mutation that only happened 500 years ago or so, a couple hundred miles north of here, uh, has, because corn is so easy to manipulate and breed, we have taken it to the nth degree of dessertness and sweetness because the public has demanded that actually corn uh, breeding is largely done by by public consent. You, you take you know average eaters and you put them in a room and you ask them what corn tastes better, and of course they go to sweetness. If you ask a chef, they go in the somewhat opposite direction. They want corn flavor first. Uh, sweetness is fine, but it can't be the first, the only, and the, and the, the sickening feeling that you you, eat, you you get after you eat the corn. So we're working with him, and, and part of it is to go back to what sweet corn was 100 years ago and then introduce... Some other corns, both for agronomic efficiency and also for even more sweetness, and get to something that's more balanced and that has you taste. Now, in, so to get to the answer to the question, like a lot of people are reacting strongly against that. Not a lot, a, a good percentage of them are, but, but, but a lot of people are saying, thank God somebody is talking about this because I actually don't like sweet corn. It's, it's, it's a sugar pellet, and I want to taste corn. And so you introduce that, and we introduce darker corns, which have the higher nutrition and you're all of a sudden having a conversation uh, about what is what we supposedly like ultra sweet corn, and we can change that idea through through work and taste.
2: So you talk about the, um, how you're going back to older varieties, that we have to undo some of the damage we've done in breeding. And th- that's a story we see uh, and that I've also written about um, we know, I think the best examples that are most intuitive to people are probably tomatoes and strawberries, which is to say, we can go to the supermarket any time of year and buy these giant, perfect, red-looking fruits that taste like water or like styrofoam that's been soaked in water. Uh, it wasn't always that way. Uh, this is due to, in our breeding, we've generally prized productivity and disease resistance, and we never asked the question, how does it taste? This is a particularly North American phenomenon. There's other parts of the world. Um, a really interesting example is chicken. Um, if you
4: look at cookbooks... I just wanted to interrupt you. I th- I was a, we do ask, how does it taste, but we're asking the wrong people. That's the problem. Well, exactly. And with corn is a good example of asking the wrong person.
3: And hey, I think yeah. wheat is, too. I mean, we, we yeah. deal with northern Washington. We talked about on the phone. Breeders are, as we... I think you mentioned that, too. Breeders of some of these crops are essential to get to because we're coming up with all kinds of strains that are from a long time ago, and the taste is amazing. So I think it's more regional focus is, is starting to make some of this happen.
4: Sorry to interrupt you, though.
2: Yeah. But, but I guess the question I have is, why did things go the way they did? If, if you look at chicken, if you read cookbook authors over the years, for example, in 1961, Julia Child wrote to beware the perfect, plump-looking supermarket chicken because they taste, in her words, like teddy bear stuffing. So Julia Child, you know, she'd spent 10 years in France, but she noticed it. Chicken had, had really only started to change around 1948, 1949. Um, You can look at the early, I think it's the 1973 edition of The Joy of Cooking, where they say the same thing. These modern chickens are losing all their flavor. By the time you get to Mark Bittman's book, How to Cook Everything, he describes chicken as a blank slate on which you impose flavor. But chicken wasn't always that way. But what's really interesting, the same changes took place in France. And as they brought uh, in these industrialized, super fast-growing chickens, some people said, hey, wait a second, something's wrong with chicken. And they created the La Belle Rouge chicken which has been around since the 1950s, or maybe the early 60s. And to sell a La Belle Rouge chicken, it has to be 84 days old, as opposed to like 35 days. It has to uh, actually go outside, it has to have more room, and eat a certain kind of a diet. So it's, it's a hybrid, but it's almost like what we talk about as an heirloom chicken. And this is not some tiny little chicken that only a fraction of the population in France eats. It has more than half of the market share of the whole chicken market. Uh, it's worth more than a billion dollars. So it's big business, there's big business in flavor. So I guess what I'm curious about is what is it about this continent? If you think of the supermarket, it's an odd place because we're, we're told to eat around the exterior of the supermarket where the fresh produce is, where the fresh meat is, and yet that's the sector that cares the least about flavor. Then you go to all the packaged foods and there's all these exciting, you know, there's like roulette Doritos, there's all the soft drinks where these companies are thinking a huge amount
4: about flavor. Why do you think that happened? Why did it unfold this way? Mary, do you want to tell? Ta- he's talking supermarkets, do you want to tackle this? Or?
3: I mean, I'll let you, I mean, w- the supermarket whole experience is evolving now with Amazon and everything else, but um, I think things are, you know, we went maybe too far in some cases. You talked about tomatoes and strawberries. I think you're, you're seeing we're trying to pull some of that back. We did it for all the reasons this country wants. We, I grew up in Minnesota. We only had apples. I mean, when, we, when I grew up in the wintertime, there wasn't a lot of choice. That's all changing, and I think that's good. Most of our grapes come from Chile. I mean, that's, that's good because we all want them. We buy them, so we have availability. But we're getting better at pulling back on the flavor. I've seen it with the wheat. I see it with some other crops I work with, lettuce and, and romaine um, in particular. So I, I'm optimistic we're pulling some of it back, but it was for distribution, I mean, to be honest. Go ahead
4: yeah I would probably add add water to the whole discussion of, of distribution and that that a lot of this stuff is bred for increased water content because that's where the weight is and that's where the farmer makes the money and the distributor makes the money and the processor makes the money so a chicken that's plumped on water is a chicken that that is freed up to plump up on, on essentially a free resource or was a free resource until a couple of years ago in California and so you 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 have you know this this you know collection of 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 instances along the way where, where you know, there's many factors. but I look at the water just as like a singular thing and through most of the produce is bigger, fatter, emptier of flavor and nutrition because it's been pumped up on water because it's free. Um, and
2: yet, in, uh, I know a breeder at the University of Florida who's created, I don't want to call it the per- perfect tomato, but a, a, a very exciting tomato, which is to say he's, he's crossed modern tomatoes with heirloom tomatoes and created a hybrid that gets the idea. Heirloom flavor scores, and yet has the productivity of a modern tomato, uh, has the disease resistance, has the shelf life. It's a great tomato. It, it holds the promise of of everybody in this room being able to go into a supermarket and buy a decent tasting tomato. For him to actually get tomato breeders, um, or or seed companies, and growers interested in, I mean, you'd think, oh my God, he's done it, the world will change. And in fact, it's been the opposite. The uh, the tomato growers say, well, you know, this tomato is just a little bit smaller, which means my labor cost goes up. I don't get paid anything for flavor, so why, right. why would I take a chance on this tomato? But interestingly, he sent the same tomato to a uh, seed company in Italy. They grew a sample crop, and they said, we'd like 15,000 seeds. So it does seem, is it something cultural? Is it something to do with our, our, uh, a more industrialized system?
3: Uh, it, it, you know, I'll just say that in egg, it takes a while to move this ship. So when you have farm, and if you've been to Salinas, you see all the, all the crops that are planted down there, how we harvest them is usually with big machinery. To turn that back, to turn that back and bring in some of the attributes of softness, which you know, come with some of the genes that you're talking about, it's, it's, gonna, it's gonna take new innovations in equipment. And that's all happening. When I was in the grape business with wine, we worked with table grapes because harvesting is everything. You don't want to smash them after you've really taken care of them. That's why we handpick in Napa. So all these things are, are changing with technology, and that's where R&D comes in, is really investing in us being able to understand and develop these new things that'll transform flavors in the natural product.
4: This, this idea seems to be firmly implanted in the minds of, of most of our food culture that the choice between yield and flavor that you're you're one or the other and it's a false choice as we know and you just proved the point with that la belle rouge chicken pretty much mm-hmm. proved the point there too yeah so um mary as somebody who's worked trying to
2: influence consumer choices work with big companies to what degree you know some of the scientists i talk about this they they um subscribe to the push thesis which is to say we are a largely passive group of consumers and big companies are pushing more calories on us. To what degree do you think that is true and or to what degree is the consumer demanding this? We, you know, We often talk about portion size, for example. Portions are bigger in this country. If you go to Italy, portions are smaller. Is that because restaurants are forcing larger portions on us or is that because diners say they want more food?
3: Um, I think one thing, you had a couple questions in there. One is on calories and one is on, I, I'll just call it health and wellness. I think what, what we've seen and what I've seen is people want a choice. So we offer tall, we offer grande. I'm just giving an example at Starbucks and a venti. In, in Europe, those sizes aren't the same. I mean, they, make me, they may be a little less. So took, our country is one that wants a choice The sizes are what they are. You have a choice when you come into the store. I think when you go out to eat, in this country, we all know we give egregious portions if you go anywhere in the world. So the mentality has got to change, and a lot of people in this room can start to impact that because I could work on reducing sugar and salt. That's all balancing things, bringing in new ingredients to get the same texture. But when it comes to volume that people want, we have to start persuading people or giving them a choice in the size of of serving they get, because I think it's egregious in this country. I think, I mean, maybe not in all restaurants, but for the most part, I think that's where you get your calories.
4: Yeah, well, I would look at it in a historical context, too. I mean, we we always were were serving large portions. I mean, I, I, in the research for the book, was just amazed at the diary entries of people who come from Europe to the United States and just completely disgusted by the the portion size of plates, is going back to the 1700s. Uh, in part because we were such a we're flush, we were a virgin soil country, and uh, we had rainfall, and we had temperate climates. We, we had all the Garden of Eden ingredients to create tons of food, and and we weren't a, a, a country that was founded on great farming. Actually, it was founded on terrible farming. The people came over, had no farmland, and they came over, they didn't really know how to farm. But they threw a seed in the ground, and and. You had this incredible productivity, and a part of our food culture, and I think this hasn't been talked about enough, is, was laid right there. It was just that we, we didn't have the ethic of the Europeans or the, the Asians or any other culture that's existed for thousands of years where peasants were eking out what the land could supply and trying to make it delicious and nutritious. We just were never forced into those kind of negotiations, and I think today we're living off of that kind of, uh, that kind of largesse, in part. And in part, that adds to the problem with flavor. Is that when you have that kind of tonnage, you're not looking at flavor in the way that these other cultures and cuisines looked at it uh, throughout their history.
3: I just have one quick, just to, to play on that. And that is uh, one of the uh, companies I work with is a vertical farming, and what they what, this is where science comes together with, with ag and the future. We can grow and get like 15 cuttings off a lettuce seed versus two in a field. And the flavor of the the products we are growing in this vertical farming environment are unbelievable. It tastes just like when you picked it off the farm when I was a kid, I just go, I remember this taste. So I know we can do it, and I know it's gonna change and evolve, but you can't go fast enough. You you just can't go fast enough on some of these things, but I I feel that we're gonna evolve some of the flavor of the things we're used to fairly quickly.
2: Um, Do you think big food companies are incentivized to do that? you know the, the question of flavor, and particularly the irresistibility of modern food, is really interesting to me. Um, we generally n- never talk about nutrition and flavors being the same thing. We think they're separate. There's good reason for that. Um, most of the micronutrients, I think with the exception of vitamin C, micronutrients have no flavor. So For a long time, nutritionists have avoided flavor because they, it just doesn't make sense. It has nothing to do with the, you know, the pure nutrients we need. We're getting glimpses now that this is, in fact, far more complex. Um, the, the tomato breeder I mentioned at, at, in Florida, he, he did research on the flavor compounds that drive tomato liking, that make us bite into a tomato and go, my God, that's a delicious tomato. And what he found is that there's about 26 flavor compounds that, that really drive our liking. And he was looking for the way the plant makes that flavor because he thought, if I can figure out how the tomato is making flavor, I can start to breed for it, I can identify it. And what he found is that those 26 compounds that drive liking are all synthesized from essential nutrients, things like omega-3s, essential amino acids, um, carotenoids. Uh, He wrote about this in the the journal Science. Uh, It's really interesting because it suggests that the reason we like flavor, what what a tomato is effectively telling us is there's good stuff in here. And the way it works is it takes too long to sense micronutrients, they're too stable. if there is an association between these micronutrients and the aromas they give off that our nose can sense, that suggests that there's actually more to it, that there isn't this huge gulf between you know, what lights up our pleasure sensors and what we need. Knowing that, and knowing that uh, flavor companies, big food companies have been so effective at essentially cleaving that into two, just taking the flavors and creating Doritos, creating ketchup-flavored potato chips, creating ice creams that taste like fruit but have absolutely no fruit in them. Is it possible for big food to be part of the solution? I
3: think I think so. I mean, uh, chestnut, chestnut praline latte. I mean, I don't know if you've had one. If you had a real chestnut, an authentic chestnut flavor, you would, chances are the majority wouldn't like it in this room if I put that in your drink. But I can make a product with a natural flavor, tastes like a chestnut that you'd want in a drink like a chestnut praline latte. So it's all around giving you what you want without having to necessarily go to what you may not, uh, really may not like at all. So that's kind of what the food industry can do. The one comment I wanted to make with nutrition linked to flavor, think how much we spend on healthcare. I was talking to our our table about this. Uh, Not healthcare, but in terms of research for medicines, et cetera, over 45 billion I think the government spends. Specialty crops, there's 450, over 450 specialty crops, berries, strawberries, blueberries, you can name all of them. We spend, what, about a billion dollars researching even the health and wellness attributes of these things. So we have to get that pressure you heard us talk about, going back and saying you need to reverse how you think about this. We need to invest more in understanding what these natural foods do for us because it's a huge void and, and, and I know that we all know they're good for us, but we can't even explain how. So, so that's what we need to work on.
4: I don't know. Mary's not making me hungry. But I, I, I hear what you're saying. I'm not, I'm not going nuts over that. I'm less interested in the manipulation at the end of the line than I am at the beginning. Um, and and I, I'm not so sure about that chestnut, what is it? Chestnut latte? It Sounds delicious. I, I mean, I, I'd like a shot at making that for you with the real thing. Well, I,
2: I will be the impartial latte judge. Yeah. I volunteer. Um, well, similarly, Dan, um, yourself, people such as you, uh, farmers markets, people out there in the trenches trying to get back to better ag. The criticism, and I get this, is that you're, you're just creating foofy foo- foo- food for hear, rich people. I got it. Um, uh, Blue Hill probably isn't drawing a lot of customers away from Burger King and Denny's and so forth. Um, how do you respond to that, that line of attack? That were for the elites?
4: Um, well, so there's probably several ways to respond to it. I don't, know, I don't know that I can defend that we're not pulling white people from Burger King and Denny's. It's probably right. Um, but, but I would suggest that like, a lot of what we're doing in our kitchens are incubating ideas for the Starbucks of the world, actually. Um, uh you know these these ideas that come out of our kitchens tend to bleed into the culture um and that's why we have rarefied cuisine in the same way that we have rarefied art or rarefied fashion or the rest um and i'm a i'm a defender of that not just because i wear a white coat that charges a heck of a lot of money for dinner but because i do believe that that these ideas come from up high uh and and if they're good ideas uh and and they are attached to the kind of ecological decisions that we are confronted with now and need to be confronted with more in the future, um, that they will bleed into the culture in the right way. Uh, but they need to start somewhere up high, and that's what I, what I feel as if I represent. I also am a part of the Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture, which is a non-for-profit education center for which Blue Hill is located. And if you were to take a public transportation ride to Stone Barns and spend the afternoon with free education programs and free tours of a magical uh, working farm. Uh, magical in its eye candy, real in its working farm ethic. Uh, You will experience vegetables and grains and animals working in combination to not only produce delicious food, but to improve the ecological functioning of the place that is 25 miles from where we're sitting. Um, You could also sit down to dinner and have an expensive meal as well. Uh, But all totaled your entire day will be one-tenth the cost of going to Disneyland uh, and a lot more enjoyable
2: or getting gastric (laughs) bypass surgery. Um, Which brings up something interesting because you you work with Mike Mazurik at Cornell. Uh, You could argue you're doing R&D. If you think about what Dan Barber does versus um, a big food company, are they that different? Um, You're interested in motivating your your customers. You're interested in giving them a highly pleasurable experience. The reason I bring this up is because we tend to think of the artisans of the world as being somehow on a different planet, entirely different and having no crossover with the industrial producers. And yet there are lots of examples of where these things, not only cross borders, but it's hard to distinguish. Mm-hmm. Craft is a great example. Craft beer is enormously popular. If you got into a time machine and told a bunch of beer executives in 1987 that in 30 years it's just gonna be these crazy bitter tasting beers, uh, beers um, they're gonna be hoppy, they're gonna have citrus notes, they, they just would not believe you. Because they just used to, all the beer tasted the same, and they used to fight it out based on marketing and the TV ads with all the, all the pretty girls. That has changed in a remarkable way. If you look at kale, I mean, for all the terrible news in the food environment, kale is a remarkable story. Um, a vegetable that used to be a trivial pursuit question uh, is, I mean, we make fun of it. Kale is so popular, but we should be happy about this. So I'm interested in both your thoughts on this. Is there, is there some way this can all come together? That, um, that the, the big companies looking for large volumes of customers can be motivated to do the right thing and that similarly people like dan can be part of what people like you do
4: i maybe i'll just take i just want to underscore the beer example as like because i don't want to be all dystopian about what the future of of food looks like. i think it's a, one of the best examples of where we can go and scale up which is what everyone seems obsessed about when they talk about sustainable and organic and good-for-you food, how does it scale up? Well, well beer is a great example of, of, you know, 15 years ago. There were very few craft breweries. Today it's almost 40% of the market, it's 38% of the market. I know that just because I was standing in the middle of a, of a farm in North Dakota a few weeks ago <clears throat> with a guy, it's, it was, he was a mid-sized farmer. There was 24,000 acres. 20, I was like farming Rhode Island. It's one guy with one tractor. He farms corn, corn and soy rotations and wheat. Um, North Dakota is the epicenter of, of hard red spring wheat, which is the best, best bread wheat in the world. And he grows some of that, but most of his rotations of corn and soy. But increasingly, about 10% of his farm is now in barley, and is in barley because of the craft brewing industry. It is no longer controlled by anheuser Bush and Coors, who demanded, as we know, this, this reject rice and wheat, which made adjunct, uh, beers for their malt. They, the craft brewery industry demands real malt. The reason I, I wanted to underscore is because the, the other side of what you were talking about in, in a positive way is that that barley is a fantastic rotation crop. So that every time we are drinking a bottle of craft beer, we're actually improving the ecological functioning of this 24,000 acre farm. It's true. I know that's a little, a little far-fetched. Um, we're talking about beer, but we're not. When you're standing in the middle of a farm that, that rotates only corn and soybeans. And, and when you think about barley as a soil-supporting rotation crop and you think about it going from zero to 60, going from zero to 40% of the industry and, and predicted to overwhelm Anheuser, Busch & Coors in the next 10 years, you start thinking think about what's possible on, on a large scale. And it also reminds us of why beer became so popular in the first place. It was the great, in Europe, it was the great rotation crop into wheat. You couldn't have wheat without growing barley, actually. Uh, and so many people were drinking beer without knowing it in support of being able to eat wheat. Um, and that's the kind of association that, well, I like to draw out in the kitchen and through the experience of eating at Blue Hill, but that I think answers the question of like, can these ideas scale to a point where they actually make a difference on an industry level? Kale, on the other hand, uh, or Greek yogurt, for uh, look at those two, because they happened sort of at the same time and with dizzying speed took over the American food culture. Uh, and continues to take it over. Those are two examples of what happens when we don't connect these ideas with a larger pattern of eating, a cuisine, uh, in other words. I and mean, kale, for, for one thing, is we, we are running out of kale seed uh, on a breeding level. And on, on the Greek yogurt example, we went from eating regular yogurt to Greek yogurt just sort of overnight. And what did we do with the strained-off whey from that, from that yogurt? Well, in upstate New York, there's a real acidification problem going with farmers that are dumping this whey into their soils because there's no market for whey. Well, the the reason there's no market for whey is because we have no food culture that appreciates whey. That doesn't happen in Greece or in Scandinavian countries where whey becomes that elixir drink that is so healthy and delicious and and perfect for your biome. Or in Greece where you marinate meats with it and tenderize offcuts. Uh, in the way. So we don't, our food culture needs to evolve to the point where these ideas not only get taken up with dizzying speed, which is part of the great thing about American food culture. I mentioned the, the negative American food culture. The great thing American food culture is we have no culture. that, we, that Other cultures don't take up these ideas with the kind of speed that we do. Uh, Japan, France, Italy, much more entrenched in their traditions. And one of the beauties of American um, food habits is that we change on a dime. The flip side of it is the the kale and and Greek yogurt example because it ends up becoming the byproducts of that end up becoming waste where they should become caloric delicacies that make the pleasure of eating even more so. Okay.
3: So we we carry both kale and Greek yogurt at Starbucks as an example. But we were we we get ideas absolutely from eating out from visiting various places that are unique and doing unique things. Our, our Caesar salad was half kale. So. We don't shy away from trying it because why not try it? And we think it's fabulous. So um, the other example I just wanted to give you is, you know, when you're talking volume, you have to figure out how to marry the best that you can have for taste with what consumers want. And I'll just give you Taco Bell as an idea. We we sold in pro, as a restaurant more tomatoes than anybody in the U.S. That's how much volume we needed for tomatoes, chopped up tomatoes on your tacos. Believe it or not, it was just a huge volume for us. So we have to get from many places. It gets very complex, but again, we continue to work on the research with the growers so that we can get better and better at what we offer in that chain too.
2: Um, I would love this to keep going, but we have run out of time, Uh, and it's time for lunch. Time for flavor. Thank 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 you both.
5: Tamar Haspel is a journalist who writes the James Beard Award winning um, Unearthed column at the Washington Post. When she's not contributing to numerous other uh, publications, she is raising chickens, growing tomatoes, and managing her oyster farm, which makes her another uh, symbiotic friend to me, uh, Barnstable Oysters off of Cape Cod. Tamar Haspel. Thank you, Karen.
6: Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I love being in this room because there's so many food conferences where everybody agrees, and nobody agrees here. And and I think that's a great starting point for a conversation. And this session is is a natural follow-on to the sessions we had this morning. In Darren's session, we talked a lot about uh, consumer priorities, what consumers were thinking. But there was also some talk about how what they 're thinking and what they 're doing aren 't always the same, and Rachel talked about the fact that when people when consumers answer surveys, sometimes they talk about you know what they would like to be doing or what they aspire to be doing or what they think they 're doing rather than what they 're actually doing and then in mark 's session, we learned that the gap between what consumers say they do and what they actually do is largely explained by doritos and I know I wasn't the only one who ate the last Dorito on my table, but think about it. If it has the power to distract Dan Barber, imagine what it does to the rest of us. So there are all these foods out there that are, are pulling consumers' attention and sometimes you know, maybe thwarting some of their best intentions. How do the big companies navigate this situation? How can they do it while, oh, by the way, also saving the planet and remaining profitable? So we're going to answer that question in 45 minutes. And if if there's time at the end, we'll get to the meaning of life. But I'm not going to read all the bios, because you have them on your phone. But please welcome our panel. We have Josh Anthony from Campbell's, Jason Lippis from Fresh Direct, Alexia Howard is an analyst at Bernstein, and Mahmoud Khan from PepsiCo. Thank you all for joining us. And because so much of this hinges on what consumers are really doing, Alexi, I want to start with you. Um, I think we learned a lot about priorities this morning, about how consumers are beginning to think about the environmental impact of the, the choices they make um, and how their purchasing decisions are changing and consequently changing some of the biggest players in this industry. But there's a disconnect between what they say they do and what they actually do. Let's talk about how consumer priorities are being reflected in actual sales. What's actually changing out there in the marketplace?
7: Sure. So. Um Really, since 2013, we've started to see uh, a decline in the sales of many of the heavily processed foods out there. Uh, I'm an investment analyst, and so I have access to the Nielsen data. And what we've been seeing in what the companies have reported is that sales of heavily processed foods, we're talking about things like uh, Chef Boyardee canned pasta, jell uh, desserts, refrigerated um, puddings and things like that, not doing so well. Uh, but things that are fresher and, and more authentic and made of simpler ingredients, things like refrigerated vegetable juices, things like chilled pasta, um, those, those kind of products are actually doing very well. Ready-made salads this year are the category that's seeing the highest year-on-year increase in both shelf space and in-store velocity, which is the rate at which the product is turning on the shelf. So if
6: one of the biggest things that's driving changes in the marketplace is a desire for something fresh, that obviously isn't in the wheelhouse of some of the largest packaged food companies who are not accustomed to playing in that supply chain. And I guess, MacMood and, and Josh, I'd like to ask you, how is your company responding to that? And Campbell has been aggressive in, in buying brands and things. How much of that has to do with consumers moving to fresh? And, and and what's in the plan? How do, you, how do you adjust for that?
8: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it was talked a l- about a lot this morning about the shift to the retail perimeter. And clearly, you've seen, uh, you know, we've been shifting with that, right? Currently, our fresh businesses account for about a billion dollars' worth of sales. And it's an area that we continue to see important growth.
6: And how does that compare to the canned soup sector of your business? Uh,
8: the I would say if we look at the america's business so the okay. shelf stable aspects of our business broadly as opposed to breaking it up, you sure. know, breaking each part out the uh the Amer- the uh, the Americas shelf stable business is right around five billion dollars
6: so. okay, so one billion is a decent sized chunk of that mm, absolutely. and is that where you see, where you project to see the growth it's one of the
8: areas it's it's one of the areas where we we will we expect to continue to see growth mm-hmm. I don't think it's the only area right uh, you, we've one of the things that's been really transformational for Campbell was this idea of real food that matters for life's moments, mm-hmm. right? And we wrestled an awful lot around what does real food mean, mm-hmm. right? And so part of that is having food that has recognizable ingredients, that it's going to be crafted with care, and that it's gonna be affordable and accessible. Mm-hmm. So one of the things on, on that last point, affordable and accessible and making sure that you, know, you can get the best food to all people. So in that context, Looking across different types of foods, not just fresh, and being able to deliver the benefits is gonna be important for people.
6: Mm-hmm. And we're leaning
8: in a big way in the health and well-being right now as mm-hmm. part of that. But that doesn't mean it's strictly the, the domain of fresh.
6: From PepsiCo's perspective, what is fresh doing to your business and, and how are you
9: adjusting? So our approach for quite a while now has been one of a very diversified approach. Unlike many of our competitors, most of our companies, we don't have a single vertical. If you think about our business across the world, we have snacks, we have beverages, we have juices, we have dairy, we have baby food. It depends on which market, which brand, and that allows us to play multiple levers. So I think one of the reasons PepsiCo's business continues to grow and has been growing, and ask any analysts, they love our stock. Why is that? Because Mm -hmm. even in this period, our products serve multiple states. And different consumers at different times of day. You know, I always remind people, not everybody wants a healthy, fresh product 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Does anyone want a healthy, fresh exactly. product? Exactly. And so you have to have a portfolio. And if you think about growing categories within our business, of course, we, Sabra the hummus, right? It's the number one hummus brand in the country. We launched that from scratch. We saw this coming. And so we created a hummus business. I see a lot of Cavita product out there. When we see an opportunity where there's a growth opportunity, of course we'll engage, we'll grow. Naked juice is the same. I'll give you lots of those examples. The key is a diversified portfolio. So I
6: want to get back to clean labels for a second. Um, that talking to almost anybody who does research, and we were talking about this over lunch. Clean labels seem to be be one of the things that consumers are really focused on. It's something that's really gotten traction in social media. But sometimes there's a disconnect between what people believe is going to be helpful for them and what may actually be helpful for them. And there there was a story uh, just, I think it was last week or the week before, about PepsiCo and glycerin. And that it said, and perhaps you can confirm or deny, that, uh, that PepsiCo was working to get glycerin out of some of its products, not because there's anything wrong with glycerin. Even the Center for, the, uh, for Science and the Public Interest says it's perfectly safe. But because they're afraid, the company is afraid, that consumers are going to latch onto that as the next thing. Um, and you know, you're a scientist. You're a doctor. Do, do you ever like have a moment where you say, "Oh, glycerin," um, th- that PepsiCo <laughs> is spending blood and treasure on this thing that is just really shuffling the deck chairs on on processed food?
9: So I got other than when I'm trying to explain to my wife, no. <laughs> um, the challenge that is the consumer is confused, okay? And part of this is industry has an issue. Part of it is our regulations. Some of you may have already done this t- little exercise. But Google, go online and Google a banana. And then take a look at the chemical composition of a banana. It's online, if a whole banana, nothing else. That label is half a page. Because if you actually make a product, you actually have to list its constituents. When it exists, quote, out there, then those chemicals don't, aren't listed. So, and some of the names we use because we're required to are scary names. I mean, how many of you have seen tocopherol? Well, it's vitamin E. Mm-hmm. And so, the, because the law says you've got to write it as tocopherol, 90% of consumers look at that and go, what, what is this? And so, the challenge is we have multiple. The requirements, the confusion and lack of understanding of the actual chemistry of, of naturally occurring food. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, We want a safe food supply. And we want shelf life and convenience. Well, a lot of companies have made a lot of mistakes trying to clean up the label, resulting in far worse problems.
6: So how do you navigate this space where you have consumers who have this expectation? You have a fiduciary responsibility to continue to sell to these consumers. So, to some extent, you have to meet these expectations, regardless of w- what they are. Even if it means doing things that are not necessarily in, you know, g- going to, to to improve public health. But at the same time, you want to do some meaningful things, like source products. Um, that, that have a smaller footprint when it comes to, to palm oil, or cane sugar, or even the more prosaic things like you know, uh, soybean oil. And those are things that aren't on consumers' radar at all, and they're not willing to pay for it. What do you do?
9: Look, there's some things we have to do because it's the right thing to do, right? I'll give you a couple of examples. Having said that, in sometimes, I mean, my own experience was we get the communication part really wrong. We took Lay's about a decade ago and changed. We were the first company in the world to, as a major company, to substitute to healthy oils, right? We substituted to sunflower oil and very proudly put a logo on saying this is a healthier oil. The l- number of complaints we got from Lay's consumers said, you've messed up the taste of my product. I refuse to buy this anymore. So what did we do? We didn't go back and put the old oil back. We just took the logo off. Right. And then we started getting all these compliments from consumers saying, thank God you took it back. So And so you have to just be able to communicate right if it's the right thing to do. And we did this 10 years before it became regulation. Mm-hmm.
6: So Jason, when we talked about this, another of the bugaboos that, that, that we were talking about, I know we have all these conversations out of school, So, but um, besides clean labels, people are keyed in on genetically modified ingredients. And that was another thing that came up this morning. And so Fresh Direct carries some products that have uh, a non-GMO label, even though there's there's no genetically modified analog, um, because people care. Tell me how you feel about that.
0: So, we have, uh, we have feelings about it, um, <laughs> but <laughs> um, for us it's about really balancing where the consumer is with their understanding and also trying to lead them a little bit with the products that we show them and, and also differentiate ourselves strategically from our competitors. I would say in the case of packaging and, and mm-hmm. claims. Um, one of the things that we have the luxury of doing versus a brick-and-mortar retailer is curating the storefront virtually. Mm-hmm. Um, so the consumer isn't necessarily engaging with claims in the same way. Instead, they're engaging with master data that they can filter and sort by to say, ah, okay, don't show me...
6: So are you going to wheedle your way out on a technicality because uh, you're an I, online company? I don't,
0: I don't think it's wheedling our way out because actually... Um, The ability to sort through products Mm -hmm. virtually um, lets the consumer cut through basically all the crap and claims that they're not interested in seeing.
6: So, last week or two weeks ago, there was a a company, uh, Mans Produce, and they do packaged produce, and they decided that they were going to take the non GMO label off of all of their products because they felt like they were playing into consumer fears. Um, and it's a ballsy decision because they, the, the consumer fears are legit. Um, and is it the job of companies, whether it's, it's a, a, essentially a grocery store like Fresh Direct or a food manufacturer like, like Campbell or like PepsiCo, is it the job of these companies, to some extent, to try and steer consumers toward a more realistic, fact-based, true assessment of what's good for them or what isn't?
8: Yeah. I, well, I'll start. I mean, because I, kind of coming back and coming back to some of what Mahmood was speaking to, there's an issue right now of trust, right? Consumers oftentimes aren't trusting large companies, so. How do you start to establish trust? Because real food and the question, you know, the question around labeling and foods that people understand is getting at this issue. So I think one of the most important things that you can do is be as transparent as possible, one, and take a stand. And when, I, when I'm saying take a stand, that is, so as, we're think, as we think about things like sustainability, we think about product, we think about people, we think about the planet and we publish what we're looking to do. The idea behind that is is you can look at our position, and you can agree or disagree with that position, but then you can argue from a fact-based space not just a place of saying well i think this is good or bad.
6: And what stand has uh, has Campbell taken a stand on for example genetically modified foods? We
8: will label gen- we will label genetic- genetically modified uh, food we'll na- label genetically modified ingredients in all our
6: foods. And that gets me back to the original question mm-hmm. that it strikes me that that transparency i think everybody agrees is a great thing mm-hmm. that and there's there hasn't been enough of it in the food supply. But if if your stand is that you're going to label what you do, mm-hmm. rather than having a stand on that issue itself, mm-hmm. is that trying to have your cake and eat it too? Well,
8: I'm sorry. Our stand is that it is safe. OK. We will provide, we will provide uh, organic or some foods that do not contain genetically modified ingredients, because we recognize that that's important for some consumers. But if we're having a dialogue, if somebody comes up to me and says, I don't believe in GMO. My question will be, well, let's, let's talk about that. What, what elements are you concerned about? Do you feel that it is not safe? Are you concerned about persistent pesticides? Are you concerned about, you know, going back to the earlier discussion, about the potential quality of some of the foods that have been genetically modified or the nutritional content? That's a very different discussion than just starting from I am... For GMO, or I'm against GMO, and I will then seek out sources that will reaffirm that point.
6: And I, you know, I think that that man's decision to take that pack that the label off of the package mm. um, is an unusual and and again, sort of a, a brave um, stand. Can retailers like Fresh Direct afford to do that kind of thing? Are you inclined to want to do that? Do you have your uh moment when it comes to, to genetically no GMO labels on the things that Fresh Direct carries? Do you feel as though you, you're you playing a part in, in playing into consumer fears by selling the products that they want to buy? I mean, it, it even sounds like a ridiculous question because, of course, you have to sell the products they want to buy, otherwise, you're out of business. But, you know, w- what, what keeps you up at night about that?
0: Um, a lot. Uh, but it, it, it's a balance, again. Um, so, a consumer fear around GMO in a certain category um, may be a concern that they have, and we want to give them the ability to identify what's GMO and what's mm-hmm. not really quickly. Um, sort of based on where uh, it makes sense. And mm-hmm. where it makes sense is something that we can debate about <laughs> right. a lot. Um, and we do. But in a category like cheese, a gluten-free filter isn't going to make a ton right. of sense. And so it's really kind of finding what are those cases on either side that have a clear answer. And in those gray areas, defaulting always to transparency mm-hmm. and letting consumers that And make I think that that's choice.
6: a reasonable default. And so, so often the answer to these difficult questions is, well, you know? Case by case, we're doing the best we can, and, and uh, you know, I don't know that there is a better answer than that. But I want to I switch to one more issue, and then I want to open it up to the floor. But let's talk about uh, environmental sustainability and animal welfare, two things that um, many companies are trying to take a stand about as far as sourcing uh, uh, foods. Will consumers pay for those things, Alexia?
7: I think if you go over to Europe, uh, and I go many times a year, we're finding over there that there is a lot more concern about the environmental sustainability factor, uh, not only from consumers, but also, most importantly, from investors as well. I think over here, uh, the concerns around food for consumers is mostly around what am I feeding my kids, or the fact that the immediate family and the content of the food at the moment. I suspect that, as we've seen with some of these other trends, things that start in Europe uh, on the social front often migrate over here. So it may be that five or 10 years down the line, uh, the environmental factor becomes much more important.
6: And until that happens, so if we have, and I think the, the, the recent, uh, the, the cage-free egg glut is instructive because there's been a great deal of pressure in the food chain to, to go to cage-free eggs, and then a lot of cage-free eggs appeared in markets, and it was a complicated dynamic because of the egg supply in general, but consumers balked at this. They, they wouldn't pay for it at, at the retail level. Does that put a lot of pressure on companies like PepsiCo? Because if, if consumers aren't going to pay for it, but PepsiCo is committed to try and source products more responsibly, does that mean it's all on you, that you have to, to, to make this happen?
9: No, look. We started doing this with Performance with Purpose a decade ago, right? We, we included back then our looking at the planet, and I'll talk a little bit about why and you know, f- to your question, but the reality of it is, if you're gonna manage this industry for a quarter, you don't have to worry. Mm-hmm. If you're gonna manage this for the next decade, we're gonna have another billion, billion and a half mouse to feed on the planet within 10, 15 years suddenly two and a half, three billion by 2050, right? We have no more land. We're running out of fresh water. 80% of the fresh water use is by this industry. And if we don't figure this out, A, we won't be able to feed the mouths that we have to. B, we're thinking about your children. you, You can feed your children, but you won't be able to feed your grandchildren. And so as an industry, that's also going to have economic pressures. We're going to live in a world with scarce natural resources. Our supply chains will get threatened. So the reality is it's actually a very good business decision to invest in this up front because you can't change agro supply chains in a two-year cycle. This is a 10, 15, 20-year cycle. And so if the large players like ours don't sit down and say, how are we going to change this supply chain for the long run? Mm-hmm. It's not going to be in the hands In reality. But it's small players, while they're important, small businesses are very critical in the ecosystem to provoke thought, to actually say, well, here's an alternative. But unless the large players, in any industry, actually get resources mobilized, you're not going to do it. Pepsi's agro footprint is over 10 million acres. Unless we can start to take a look at that, and we've started an initiative which is unique, we're going to actually digitally map 7.5 million of those acres by 2030, and the goal is we'll know labor practices, we'll know water use, we'll know carbon footprint, so we can change the practices of the farmers. The reality is, folks, if we don't change farm practices, nothing else matters. 7% of carbon footprint and water footprint is within our own operations. The rest is on farms. Mo- the majority of carbon footprint of the food is on the farm. So-
6: one of the many articles I wrote that fell completely flat was about oatmeal. I, feel, I know how you feel. Okay. <laughs> feel my pain. It was about oatmeal because you know there's so much talk about the, all the corn and soy in the Midwest and we need to get more complex rotations in there, but it's really hard for farmers to do that because there's no demand for these other grains. And Dan Barber brought up the very good example of barley and craft beer. Now, I wanted to make the case that everyone should have oatmeal for breakfast so they can they can rotate oats in with and nobody listens. And but, but but realistically, if consumer behavior doesn't change or it changes very slowly or in a, in a small way, do we does a company like PepsiCo really have the wherewithal to change the landscape out there?
9: Now, two facets to your question. One is the consumer choice, the other is the supply chain. Mm -hmm. Let me address the second one first. Look, there's no question that we don't have enough oats that are fit for human consumption as opposed to animal feed to continue the growth of oatmeal at the trajectory it has. The challenge is not about being able to grow it. The fact is the economics of growing oats in the upper Midwest of the United States aren't attractive to farmers. And so they'll go grow cash crops. The problem is, and I'm probably going to get fired off the USDA's FFAR, which I'm a member of the board, but the USDA's food policy and the USDA's agricultural policy under the same secretary are the reciprocal opposite of each. Yes they're completely opposite to each other. So if you think about all of us who are taxpayers, what USDA incentivizes in terms of growing crops versus what it recommends Americans should consume, they're actually completely opposite to each other. And so unless, that's where a company, we can raise this, but I'll say, the problem is this room has everybody nodding their head because we already know. The people who need to be informed to change these positions, whether it's f- growing fresh fruits and vegetables, growing more oats, getting change in rotation, unless we start to change some of our policies, the economics won't make sense. Okay, before we go down an ag wonk
6: rabbit hole, which is like my favorite thing to do, but there's some other That's something of- else we share in I know, common. I know, I know. <laughs> We're going to have to open the wine after this and, and go down that rabbit hole.
10: So uh, I have the distinct pleasure to be able to have a conversation for the next 20 minutes or so um, with two of our 2017 Leadership Award recipients that we're going to be honoring this evening. Um, And actually, this is a perfect moment in where the conversation has evolved so far today and a little bit on the last panel um, as we got into a little bit of... Um, discussion around workers in particular and so uh, I'm going to welcome to the stage uh, Jose Oliva. Jose is co-director of Food Chain Workers Alliance and along with his counterpart Joanne Lowe he's being honored this evening as a 2017 James Beard Foundation Leadership Award recipient. Originally from Guatemala Jose founded the Chicago Interfaith Workers Center and has worked with the Center for Community Community Change's Worker Justice Program as well as at the Restaurant Opportunities Center United. Welcome Jose. And also on stage joining me is Joanne Lowe, who is co-director of the Food Chain Workers Alliance, uh, and also was the Alliance's first staff member when she began in November of 2009. Uh, Joanne has a background in environmental biology and has worked with worker organizations across sectors, including the Garment Workers Center in Los Angeles, whose work was memorialized in the documentary Made in LA. So please welcome both of them to the stage. Uh, we'll get started. I'm sit here. First of all, congratulations to both of you. Thank you. uh, Really wonderful that you're being recognized for your work here tonight. And so, um, Jose, I may uh, start with you. If you could just lay a little bit of groundwork for us um, about the Alliance. Um, And for all of us in the room, just so we start from a level set, um, who specifically we're talking about when we talk about uh, food chain workers?
11: So thank you again for having us. Uh, Food Chain Workers Alliance was founded back in 2008. I was at the Restaurant Opportunity Center United, as you, as you pointed out. Um, I came to this country when I was 13 years old, worked in the restaurant industry most of my life, uh, paid my way through college because I was undocumented and uh, did that with, uh, with tips, basically. Um, and so I ended up at, at ROC, at the Restaurant Opportunity Center, as a way of um, trying to figure out how to make things better for restaurant workers. Um, in the process of working at ROC, uh, I kept uh, getting invited to conferences like this one, uh, and I kept running into other food uh, worker organizations in those spaces. Um, and we kept uh, trying to figure out how we could actually have a joint impact, you know, an impact in the food system, and not just in the silos of restaurant workers, or farm workers, or processing workers, or so forth. Um, so back in 2008, we met uh, for the first time with a whole group of organizations uh, that represent workers in the whole food system um, and decided that we needed to do this, that we needed to have an organization um, that does two things, essentially. One is actually to insert the voice of food workers into spaces like this um, holistically, right, systemically, so that we're talking about the entire food system and not just one segment of the system. Uh, and then secondly, to um, think through ways that we can improve the food system as a whole uh, and that we knew how to do that because we were workers, right, because we were at the center of the food system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's, in essence, what led to policies like the good food purchasing policy, which Joanne will talk a little bit more about that, yes. but, but that's the short answer to your question.
12: Fantastic. Please. I mean, you just... um, So when we talk about food chain workers, it's workers all along the food chain, so workers in production, farm workers, fishery workers, in processing and distribution, so transportation workers and warehouse workers, into food service, restaurants, um, cafeterias, and also grocery and retail food Mm -hmm. workers.
10: So we've talked a lot today about consumers um, and the broader consumer population and does data matter, does it not? Does it affect their decisions? Is it emotionally driven, et cetera? We heard a little bit in the last panel about the restaurant sector and chefs um, really driving some of that change in the way that they work with um, both their workers in their restaurants, but also with their broader constituents. And so um, I'm I'm curious, now, when we think about the, the workers more broadly and that whole constituency as a lever for change, how do you guys do that? How do you do that through the alliance um, made up of all of these other groups? But, but what does that work look like?
12: Yeah, let me get, so we do share numbers, but you know, there's 21 and half million people in the United States who work in the food system. It's the largest sector of employment. 14% of people in the US, of workers, are in the food system. Right. It's also the lowest paid. So the food workers earn a median wage of $10 per hour. So that's the lowest wage of all industries. But with those numbers, we also try and share the stories of workers. So one of our partners is Real Food Media. Many of you know Anna LaPay started that. Um, And so we produce videos. Um, We really are trying to put a face to who are these food workers and what are the issues that they're facing? How are they? organizing um, to fight for the solutions that they need, right? Because really, our theory of change is that those who are most impacted by the problems in the food system should be the ones coming up with the solutions to those problems. And in the case of worker, it's the workers. So really support organizing campaigns. For example, or workers here in New York City who are organizing at Tomcat Bakery, who were unjustly fired earlier this year, and won't. Um, so we're supporting that campaign, for example
11: so in, in part, um, the theory of change that Joanne just mentioned, right this idea that um, nothing uh, happens without the people who are most directly impacted, or no positive change happens mm-hmm. without the involvement and engagement of, of the most impacted people, um, is something that, that really drives uh, all of the program that we run and everything that that we do um, and so a lot of where we have focused our, our work in the last few years is in uh, a policy that we call the Good Food Purchasing Policy, um, or GFPP for short. Uh, and the Good Food Purchasing Policy has five value categories. It's uh, human health, environmental sustainability, animal welfare, local economies, and labor, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, valued workforce. Um, and the way that it works is uh, a municipality or a school district or, in some cases, uh, other agencies, city agencies that purchase a lot of food uh, will actually sign up for the policy and that essentially works as a filter right so that the food that they're buying has to meet at least a baseline criteria for each one of the five value categories um, and the thing that makes this a little game-changing is that they don't get to pick and choose right oh I'm, you know we're better at the environmental sustainability so we're gonna do mm-hmm. a, a lot on that Um, they actually have to meet uh, baseline criteria for each of the five value categories. Uh, So in essence, that is changing the system, right? The food system in that entire region is shifting in a better direction um, as a result of the implementation of policies like GFPP.
10: Mm -hmm. And where are we in the rollout of that? If I'm not mistaken, that started in the L.A. area. Um, And so where are we in terms of kind of the broader rollout or other communities that are adopting Um, this this procurement policy?
12: Yes. um, So we helped to develop the policy with the LA Food Policy Council. It's a very diverse uh, working group that did that. So the City of LA and LA Unified School District, which is the second largest school district in the country, uh, adopted the policy in the fall of 2012. And last year San Francisco Unified and Oakland Unified School Districts uh, joined the program. And then this year Chicago Public Schools and the city of Chicago, just city of Chicago was just about a week and a half ago, joined okay. the program. So we're really beginning to impact millions of dollars and the potential, You know, the, the food service industry in the U.S., it's a $72 billion industry, mm-hmm. so there's definitely a lot of potential for impacting the food system through this policy. And then we have
11: ongoing campaigns here in New York City, so those of you who are local, uh, you can come and talk to us afterwards, get involved. Um, here in New York City, Cincinnati, both twin cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Washington, D.C., uh, Denver, and uh, Madison, Wisconsin. So all of those places will in the, soon, in the near future, have good food purchasing policies.
10: Fantastic. So both of you come from uh, a background of uh, organizing in other areas on the West Coast with garment workers in Chicago, working at Rock United. I'm curious, now that you are in the broader alliance that you are running, you know, what, are the, what are the similarities and or the differences um, to the work that you've done in the past um, that you've seen as you've moved into this broader coalition building phase?
11: you know it's it 's actually really fascinating, and thanks for the question uh, The way that the the alliance developed um, was really through this sort of common understanding that um, the food system that we currently have is not working for us right It, it has some real shortcomings um, not just in the in, in the sort of the access end of it right and getting good food to people um, but also in the output, right, in the actual uh, labor that is, that is built. Um, we really, um, when we started the Alliance, or for me, you know, the, the connection of um, understanding systems was a really important uh, sort of element to that. Um, coming from Guatemala, uh, learning sort of the, the history of how uh, my family was pushed out of Guatemala because of my mother's uh, involvement in... Uh, social justice issues, like that to me um, gave me sort of a worm's eye view, if you will. Um, and then on top of that, coming here to work in the restaurant industry and, and understanding um, how hard that work is and how undervalued it is by society at large um, really was, I think, the impetus that, that I needed personally to um, launch into this and to uh, understand it from that systems perspective. Mm-hmm.
10: How about you, Joanne? From the, from the more garment side, right. a different I mean, industry, there's but a similar... It,
12: there's definitely similarities in terms of supply chains, um, um, highly immigrant worker base mm-hmm. in, the, in, in both garment and in the food system. Um, and also just people who are trying to take care of their families, you know, and are looking for how they can have a voice in their workplace, in their communities. Um, it's the same. Mm-hmm.
10: So with everything we've discussed here today, um, the data, et cetera, I'm curious, you guys have been with us since this morning. Um, Is there anything that you have heard today that has really resonated with you or shifted your opinion on your work that when you go back to your work on Wednesday or tomorrow, um, is something you're taking back with you that's gonna shift the way that you're thinking about the Alliance's work?
11: Absolutely, I mean, I think, first of all, the way that, we all in this room come at these issues from our own perspectives, to me, leads me to believe that we're heading in the right direction. That even though we might be looking at things differently or because we approach it from a particular angle, that that doesn't mean that that angle is wrong because we're heading in the, in the same direction. Um, I think the, the piece right before us, right, where we, and I want to give a big shout out to the uh, folks who are on stage right before us, um, is, is really a testament of what chefs in a lot, of, um, a lot of the rest of the industry are doing in shifting their employment practices and shifting their sustainability practices. Um, uh, it is really imperative for that to be scaled up, as someone on the panel before me just said, right? That it shouldn't just be the chefs that are running as successful as they might be, but they're one-off, one-off restaurants. Uh, it really has to be uh, a system-wide change, right? And um, if if chefs are leading, that's great, uh, but then that means that we really need to follow, right? We need to push the rest of the food system and the rest of the food industry in the direction that they're leading in, Um, especially when it comes to employment issues. I feel like that's uh, oftentimes the part that gets left out, right? I know all of these really great sustainability programs that, that major corporations have, um, but they really uh, don't talk about labor at all, right? They don't talk about the workforce. And that's the human element, right? These are the folks who are actually putting the food on our table. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to the extent that we're able to push um, our uh, fellow corporate citizens in the direction of uh, having programs like the Fair Food uh, Program mm-hmm. of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, or to participate in programs like RAISE, uh, the restaurants advocating for industry Standards in employment that Rock runs. Um, I, I think that's that's the direction that we need to go, and I do feel like most of the folks in this room agree, to one extent or another, that we do need to go in that direction.
12: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I would. Add, I really enjoyed the morning session around the brain and food, and you know, as I said, we do work on trying to um, have l- workers share their stories, put a face to who food workers are, and I think that just emphasized even more that. We need to continue to do that and be creative too because there's just so much out there in the media. Um, so, how do we get people's attention to these workers' stories?
10: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious a little bit how we do that. Um, how do we bridge that consumer education piece? I mean, we can use, let's use the restaurant industry workers as an example since it came up on the last panel. Um, and the education of consumers around the shift in price at the table in a restaurant, or when the bill comes and things are messaged differently state by state versus a service charge versus you know hospitality included, etc. H- how do we how do we bridge that consumer education piece from the perspective of the alliance?
11: I mean, first of all, we have to think of ourselves as consumers in multiple dimensions. Uh, So, yes, in fact, we are consumers when we go and, you know, eat at a local restaurant or when we shop at a grocery store. Uh, But we're also consumers of uh, public services and goods. Um, And it's really important to think of ourselves that way uh, because policies like the good food purchasing policy is leveraging uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in the direction of good food. Those hundreds of millions of dollars are actually shifting the production practices, the Uh, processing practices, so forth and so on, of all of these corporations down the supply chain. Mm -hmm. Um, And to the extent that we're not thinking of ourselves as consumers in the public sector realm, um, we are sort of limiting our consumer activism to to a a narrow dimension, right, just to the private sector. Um, And so I I encourage everyone to think bigger, right? Don't just think of yourself as a uh, citizen in the context of voting. Don't just think of yourself as a citizen in the context of buying certain things and voting with your dollar, uh, but you're also a citizen in the context of all of these goods and services that are, that are actually made for you, mm-hmm. right? And you have not just a right, but an obligation to ensure that they are um, as best representing your values uh, as they can. Uh, so, you know, the, uh, there are obviously budget constrictions to the food that a school system will buy uh, but those bu- budget constrictions actually uh, could work in our favor in the context of making sure that the criteria that, are, that, are, that, that is placed in that public school system or in that park district or whatever actually speaks to the values of that community, right? So the budget is actually a moral document, not just in the context of what we buy reflects our values, but that budget actually serves as a guide Mm -hmm. for what kind of food and what kind of food system we want to see. Absolutely.
10: I think we're almost at a... We are out of time, but I'm going to ask you this question quickly anyway, um, which is really quickly, last question for both of you. What are you most excited about right now coming down the pipeline immediately that you guys are working on at the Alliance?
12: Um, Okay, I I told Megan I would put a plug. So we we really are... we also work in coalition with a lot of organizations because we, that, that is another way to to win positive social change. Um, so we are working with ASPCA, the Natural Resources Defense Council, and Grace Communications on a good grocery guide, and so that's coming out in mid-November to educate consumers about different issues in the food system, but also what can they do as consumers of goods, of consumer as you know, citizen consumers, as voters. Um, so look out for that.
10: Excellent, and thanks for the short answer. Give these guys a round of applause, and we hope you'll join us tonight for the Leadership
12: Awards. Thank you.
5: Hi. So uh, the next uh, uh, conversation that we're going to have around levers for change is um, a dialogue between myself and a lawyer who I only recently met, but as soon as he entered my office, I felt like we were uh, kins people. (laughs) <laughs> and he's going to share, his name is Kim Richmond, and he's an accomplished trial attorney dedicated to using class action as a tool for bringing about meaningful change for consumers across the nation. He's worked on cases involving public health, environmental issues, and civil liberties. And today we're going to learn a little bit more about the work that he does and the work that his firm does and how unusual it is. And we're going to hone in on one particular case that he's been working on that um, seems to fit right in with the trajectory of ideas and topics we've had today. So, Kim, come on.
13: Good afternoon. Good
5: afternoon. I'm very happy you're here.
13: Thanks for having me.
5: Sure, it's been a pleasure. So all year we've been talking about, uh, all year since we started working on this year's summit, we've been talking about all the different tools and all the different levers that individuals have, that people have, to express their voices, express their concerns over, things that are concerning them about agriculture, about food, and lo and behold, after uh, many attempts at trying to attract other people to come and have this conversation with me, um, somebody on our planning team introduced us to you, and it was a very magical moment when you walked, as I said, when you walked into our office last week and we started this conversation. So I guess, you know, this conversation started in our planning team because we, we really believe, well, we have a belief that we think, a lot of people think the law is something that's over there, that's out there, and it's, it's uh, people want to disassociate themselves with attorneys as opposed to associate themselves with attorneys because there's... Understood. Yeah, you understand <laughs> it. Right, okay. Um, so But I don't think you're like that, so tell people what you, what you do. Sure. <laughs> you're here because I don't think that you're like that.
13: <laughs> uh, thanks again for having me. I've been doing food justice work now for over a decade. I started with focusing on trans fat, then shifted my focus to GMOs, pesticides, and now we are very much focused on a lot of animal welfare issues. We have used over the past decade or so the class action device in a very creative way to address larger public health issues. I've always been of the mind that the government uh, is perhaps broken, and more than ever, uh, the work has really come into its own in that, um, indeed, the government is paralyzed at this point in time, and many of the issues that we address uh, have frankly been um, in a sense on behalf of, say, uh, the EPA or the FDA or the USDA, and so we've always been regarded as private attorney general uh, now more than ever, and uh, that Moms, then activists, uh, nonprofits, and uh, as of late, uh, progressive businesses.
5: So interesting. So one of the things that you mentioned the other day was uh, all of the research that you do. We talked a little bit about how the investi- investigative sides of law firms are kind of going away. There isn't a lot of resource. There aren't a lot of resources for investigators, and yet you have taken research on in a really big way. Tell, tell, tell people what you do. It's fascinating.
13: First and foremost, as uh, an activist, and have a very activist approach to the law. As such, uh, we run the, the firm, or should I say, the legal collective of attorneys, in fashion as if we were uh, a cross between a nonprofit and a think tank. And so, we have very active uh, investigations that stem from you know, everyday consumers bringing issues to us to NGOs, uh, identifying issues ranging from environmental, to public health, to animal welfare issues. And so we uh, dig deep and while um, in theory and figuratively many of the lawsuits put certain companies under the microscope, we in fact use uh, labs as a way to literally put certain companies under the microscope by testing Uh, Products, issuing uh, FOIA requests and the like, keeping our ear to the ground as to what indeed is uh, the consumer expectation, consumer demand of the day.
5: So um, we were going to, we made a decision to hone in on one particular case that you've been working on for a long time, right? How long have you been working on it?
13: Uh, It's been now uh, nearly two years. Okay,
5: great. So we have a slide that just sort of gives you the, the next slide gives you the uh, kind of overview. Tell the group about this case.
13: So this was a matter um, that is of growing concern to consumers uh, in terms of where, yes, our food comes from, and particularly our eggs. And as some folks know, uh, there are many different ways that eggs can be uh, produced, whether it be cage-free, free-range, organic, or pasture-raised, which is nowadays regarded as the gold standard. Uh, ironically, I should say that the EU, 50% of their egg production is pasture-raised already, whereas here it's perhaps maybe 2 or 3% if that, and it's emerging because people care, frankly, how their, their eggs are, are produced.
5: What does pasture-raised actually mean?
13: And so the definition is not defined by any governmental agency. As a result, it really comes down to the reasonable person, the reasonable consumer standard. And that is a a tricky question of law and fact um, that gets often uh, litigated in court. But in terms of pasture-raised, it's a standard that's defined by whether it be third parties, whether it be by consumer expectation, by perhaps the EU to some extent, and by experts. Um, And so this is something that um, is near and dear. People pay a premium, a pretty significant premium for pasture-raised eggs, and we had learned that Um, There was one particular company that um, allegedly um, was cutting corners and was not, in fact, uh, packaging their pasture-raised cartons with pasture-raised eggs. And so this was an issue that was of concern to the Cornucopia Institute that does certain grading systems, audits, et cetera, and had determined that they, in fact, were not pasture-raised. We were approached um, by one of our NGOs. We have a, a growing... Uh, a roster of NGOs, especially in this current administration, that have stepped forward uh, to take matters into their own hands. And that is indeed precisely what happened here with regards to the Organic Consumers Association. And they were um, up in arms, as was their base, and they wanted to do something about it, uh, especially as we see the organic regulations, for instance, around eggs being stalled. And so there was very little uh, that the government was doing, at uh, the executive branch Withstanding the efforts at the legislative branch, and so that left um, the judiciary as a place in which change can be, be made.
5: So let's let's get down to brass tacks about this particular case. So first of all, the so the the um, Hansom Brook Farm is the one that was uh, is thought to be have violating these uh, the general accepted practice of cage free. Pasture Raised? Which one is which? Pasture Raised. Pasture, right. pasture okay. Raised. Um, so who here has heard of Handsome Brook Farm? Yeah, I figured I would see at least five, ten hands because it's, it's an organization that's based not too far from New York City, in fact, upstate New York. That's right. right. And tell us how they started, how they got into business, and then tell, literally tell us what happened.
13: I think that Handsome Brook started as a small family farm, committed to Uh, this new pasture-raised standard. Um, I think that they were frankly taken aback by the consumer demand for pasture-raised, so much so that they had difficulty filling the the supply. Um, And as a result, they found themselves in a position in which they needed to start filling orders, allegedly, with non-pasture-raised eggs. And so this, of course, then created a problem, and we have used uh, deceptive uh, trade practices uh, various uh, state consumer protection statute laws to address this issue, taking the position that if you say you're pasture-raised and you're not, you're engaging in a form of false and deceptive advertising. And so we had brought this action in order to create uh, a fair and level playing field not only for consumers but also for other businesses that were truly pasture-raised, investing a tremendous amount of money in their infrastructure and building out the branding developing contracts with Costco and the like, and lo and behold, after the NGO action was brought in D.C., where now uh, NGOs have broad statutory standing to bring suit against companies, we were retained by a progressive business, Vital Farms, and we brought it under- a Competitor.
5: A competitor of, Han- of Hanson Brook.
13: Correct. And uh, the um, claim there is a Lanhamac claim, in essence, a business-to-business claim for false and deceptive advertising. And we brought this action in Upstate New York, uh, Northern District of New York, where, in fact, um, Hanson Brook Farms is is located.
5: And and Vital Farms were they the first to sort of say, in in public, this company is not doing what it's saying they're doing, and we know we're saying this because it, there are competitors. But who brought the story out? Was it was it Vital Farms or was it? Uh, was it an NGO group? Was it uh, the media? How the story get out?
13: I think it in fact, started with consumer demand, uh, with consumer consciousness rising. At, ever since uh, Mary Nessel and, and Michael Pollan has been writing on the issues around food and our food systems, people are, as we all know in this room, care more and more and are demanding uh, more of our food systems. And I think as a result, um, it's, it has snowballed. And in this case, it was Cornucopia Institute. It was another uh, consumer watchdog group that in fact conducted uh, an audit. They had a system in which they would in fact hold different companies to different standards. Um, and sure enough, uh, they did not receive the, uh, the A rating and then they were downgraded, which then uh, set into motion a number of actions by other NGOs. And again, it was not until uh, the snowball effect that you then have Vital Farms uh, stepping forward in their own right.
5: Right. So this this case is essentially, t- in some measure, taking down a company that got into business to do the right thing. And something happened. So demand happened. But what else happened? I mean, there's many th- I mean, if you have too much demand, you can just say, "I can't meet the demand," right? but you also can do what allegedly they did. Why do you think, how do you think they made the decision, Handsome Brook, and I realize you're not representing them, you're representing Pinal Farms, but what, what do you think was going in the heads of the, of the founders of Handsome Brook Farm?
13: So I have uh, litigated probably over 100 of these cases over the past decade, and the, the one common denominator throughout all these cases is where there's a disconnect, unfortunately, between the marketing department and say, legal department, or the marketing department and reality. That uh, (laughs) (laughs) marketing is, of course, key to emphasize, of course, the great attributes of any given product. And it's easy, of course, to get ahead of yourself and start promoting a product that may not meet the reality of the matter. And uh, I think that is perhaps what has happened here, that they tapped into something, um, and they were, frankly, taken aback by the growing demand. And they got, uh, for instance, contracts from Costco, et cetera, some pretty major companies. And uh, the whole essence, in, in some respects, of, of pasture-raised and perhaps the place where the food systems overall needs to perhaps migrate towards is a more concerted, deliberate effort in terms of our food production. And they could not, I think, sustain the, the rapid demand and, and the, the bottom line that's unfortunately demanded of them.
5: Right. So what's happening now at the company? The case isn't settled yet, right?
13: That's Can correct. you say? The uh, <laughs> matter is, in fact, still pending in both uh, D.C. and in, um, in Northern District of, of New York. Um, and so I think that they, the... They
5: slow down production. You told me they changed sure. management.
13: Right. I, I think that, frankly, um, uh, oftentimes the, um, the role of these lawsuits is um, not <laughs> uh, necessarily the bottom line, but to further raise awareness and um, I think that it did um, send a message, and the company has been endeavoring to work now closer with cornucopia Institute, for instance, and have in fact reinstated um, their standing with with that particular consumer watchdog group and so there are indeed efforts that the company itself is making um, I, i believe that there's new management stepping in and they are growing as uh as a larger company Um, i think that um, that they are hopefully um going to further reform their ways but of course there's still a question of the damage that it it brought uh, upon uh, vital farms as well as consumers who perhaps would have a loss of confidence thinking that they may have bought pasture-raised eggs that were not, in fact, pasture-raised.
5: Is there a case, uh, another case that you can cite, where a similar kind of trust uh, was broken between consumers and a company, but it was recovered?
13: You know, there are um, two forms of relief that every lawsuit uh, seeks. Oh, in this case, in D.C., it's injunctive relief. they would perhaps engage mean? in some type of label change, change of practices, mm-hmm. or perhaps corrective advertising, and that is the main objective of the D.C. case, is to hopefully restore confidence, whereas, yes, uh, the Lanamac case up in the Northern District of New York is on um, behalf of certain <laughs> monetary claims that they have, in fact, en- endured some significant damage and they're hoping to recoup uh, accordingly. And so.
5: Well, I just noticed that our time is up. I think they shortened our time for some reason. I don't know. I don't know what they have against you or me. (laughs) But uh, I'm going to invite all of you to grab Kim. He is a font of incredible information and um, just an enjoyable person to talk to. So thank you for coming. And thank you you for telling us a little bit about how the law does work in the favor of people and justice. Thank you. Thank
13: you, everyone.